0: Hey listeners, we are Frontline Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. You are about to listen to a sermon from a Sunday gathering at our downtown OKC location. We pray that it moves you towards the power and presence of Christ and calls you to love God, love people, and push back darkness. Please visit
1: FrontlineChurch.com for more information. The scripture for today's sermon comes from Genesis 9, 1 through 17. The word of God speaks to us. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon the birds of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your life blood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood. Be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, for it is for every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. And remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all the flesh on this earth. The word of God speaks to us.
0: Good morning, everybody. Hey, that's a lot to hear. Uh, Ann, you're a superstar. Thank you. Uh, let's just pray. Father, I ask that you would um, you would let the weight and the glory of that rest on us. If it weren't for your covenant, we wouldn't know you. If it weren't for your covenant, we would have no hope. So thank you, God, that you tell us not only that you create the relationship between us, but you're the one who upholds it. And in your unfathomable mercy, you're the one who bears the penalties for our failure in it. What must you be like? So much here to navigate, God. I, I ask that you would... Um, not let us like run past anything, but you would also um, give us eyes to see uh, the forest amidst all the glorious trees. And for all that we run past, um, give us years to walk with you and be in your word, I ask in Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. Hey, let me tell you two things quickly this morning that we're not gonna do And then I'm going to tell you three things that I at least intend to do, whether we accomplish them or not. The first thing that we're not going to do is we're not going to address general ethics. Uh, Amidst all that we just heard read, maybe it won't surprise you to know that many people use verses five and six of Genesis chapter nine to make arguments in support of and in opposition to all kinds of stuff. Capital punishment, pacifism, euthanasia, abortion, retributive justice, and more. We're we're not going to get into that for the, the, the main reason is I don't think it's what the author is trying to teach us here. I think it's missing the point, and though this is necessary to establish all kinds of ethical positions, I don't think it's the point of the author of Genesis for us this morning. The second thing that we're not going to talk about at all is slavery. Slavery which if you look at the curse of Ham, we didn't have it read, but if you look at the curse of Ham later in Genesis chapter 9, this is this wacky interpretation of these verses that's been abandoned for a long time, but people still talk about it when they talk about Genesis 9, of people have tried to trace the lines of Canaan as some kind of support of slavery and its insanity and is (laughs) rejected by every scholar there is, and we're not gonna do any more about it than say it doesn't make sense. And, and a curse in scripture never equals a mandate, so it's ludicrous anyway. But sad, can we just acknowledge it's sad? The Bible's been used for all kinds of weird stuff. And God help us, there are places that we use it weirdly. So we want to constantly submit ourselves to God's word and ask how we can read it and see it through his eyes. Here's what we are going to discuss this morning in this text, I pray by God's grace. Three things I want us to see. I want us to see a new beginning for humanity, a new beginning for humanity, an old sin plaguing humanity, and an eternal covenant Saving humanity, a new beginning for humanity, an old sin for humanity, and an eternal covenant saving humanity. Look with me at the beginning of Genesis chapter 9. We see in Genesis chapter 9 a new beginning. We we find ourselves in the wake of the flood. And the flood, if you weren't here with us last week, is God pouring out his judgment upon the entirety of the earth. And God's aim in pouring out his judgment on the entirety of the earth is to reverse the effects of the curse on the earth and to reestablish his blessing on the earth. Now, what we see in Genesis 9 is the author goes to great lengths to help us think about Genesis 1 as he describes the realities of Genesis 9. Genesis 9 is written in terms of renewal, restoration, reestablishment of creation. In fact, Genesis 9 functions like a recreation narrative. It's a new beginning. We have Noah presented to us as a new Adam. And if you go back to the end of chapter 8 in your Bibles, and if you don't have a Bible, you can grab them out of the windowsills in this room. And if you don't own a Bible, you can take one with you. If you want to just Google Genesis 8 and 9, it'll get you there just as quickly. We see a new Adam in Noah, and we see this new Adam understanding himself as operating in a, a new beginning, new temple. Eden in Genesis 1-3 to is described as a temple. And the reason why we see people as Genesis moves on at each iteration of seismic ships in humanity constructing new altars is they're reminding themselves that God created all that we see and know so that humans could know him. It is a vain attempt, albeit, but a right motivation to create a new temple, a new Eden. We see new provisions God makes for this new Adam in verse 3 of chapter 9. Just like in Genesis 1 and 2 when God says, here's what I've provided for you. Noah has provisions made for him. And we see a new commission. Look right in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 9. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Sound familiar to you at all? sound like the commission given to Adam in Genesis chapter one, verse 28. It's repeated here again in verse nine, verse seven of chapter nine, but we have a new Adam in a new temple with new provisions made, a new new commission given to him. We We have Noah set forth to fulfill the same mission that God had set Adam out to do. And here's the thing, guys. We see this over and over and over again, not just throughout Genesis but throughout the Old Testament. This is this recapitulation where we see that God is not telling us lots of stories about heroes and villains. God is telling us one story about his relentless commitment to save a people and through this people to bless all the nations of the earth. So we see the same commission given to Adam, given to Noah reinstated to Abraham after Noah fails. Because the commission was given to Adam, Adam fails. The commission is given to Noah, Noah's gonna fail. (laughs) Secret, let me let it out for you. We'll get to it by the end of this passage. Noah fails. Abraham fails, all the patriarchs fail, Israel corporately fails, and we start to see history crying out, where will there be someone who will live faithfully? Where will there be one person that will trust God? We we see even from this institution of this new Adam, creation crying out for Jesus, because there will come one who faithfully submits himself to God, who trusts God, who chooses heavenly wisdom over earthly wisdom, who chooses blessings over curses. But not today. Not today. We see this new Adam in this new temple with new provisions, new commissions, and now look in verses three and four, new stipulations. Now we don't just have Adam eating fruit. We have humanity eating fruit meat. Can I get an amen from somebody? (laughs) Meat is part of the human diet now, but God states in verse three that we can only eat things that are living. Meaning if you come upon something that's dead, that's not something you should eat. Much to the chagrin of a boss I had like 30 years ago that loved to eat roadkill. You, You know the kind. We we see, we see even here, we see even here in Genesis 9 in the ancient world the presence of rednecks. And God pushes (laughs) redneck tendencies aside and says, don't eat roadkill. You can eat meat. You gotta kill it. You gotta kill it. And that's what verse 4 makes clear that every animal should be killed. And check this out. This thing that God's doing with blood is he's not forbidding us eating rare meat, can I get an amen, or even raw meat. He's saying that you have to kill the animals that you're eating. And this was kindness or like proper stewardship of the earth that God is mandating. Because if you can imagine a world that doesn't have refrigeration, it was a high tendency among people to try to keep the animals that they were eating Alive. Yep. Should we move on? All right, let's just move on. All this is talking about blood, how we navigate blood and what we do with it, because blood was considered the life force of the ancient world. Read Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 23 with me, where God says, Only be sure that you don't eat the blood, for the blood is the life, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. Again, he's not just saying you should let your steak rest for the proper amount of time. He's saying that we should understand where life comes from and the way we eat should reflect that. Listen to how John Walton explains this in his commentary. Ritually speaking, the draining of the blood before eating the meat was a way of returning the life force of the animal to God who gave it life. This offers recognition that they've taken the life with permission and are partaking of God's bounty as his guests. Its function is not unlike that of the blessing said before a meal in our own modern practice. So God says, I've provided you with everything. I've provided you with everything. All the animals that you see are yours. Just, Just be careful how you eat them. And then as God outlines these new stipulations to the new Adam, Noah, we take this weird turn from talking about the blood of animals to talking about the blood of humans. We, we take this weird shift, and I want to ask you, why at this point does God need to give instructions about murder? Ha- haven't all the wicked people been eradicated from the earth? Aren't Noah and his family like the good guys now? What, why talk about murder? And it's at this place we're quickly reminded that though God has judged the earth and offered salvation to Noah and his family, there's something that they carry with them from the old world. There's something they carry inside of them. And and we're so inclined, aren't we, to think that the problem is outside of us. But we see even from this moment, in this act of recreation, that God is reminding us the problem isn't outside of us, the problem is inside of us. I I haven't done children's church in a long time, so I don't know if this is done, but I've read and heard about it being done so often that I presume it's being done. You can correct me if I'm wrong, and maybe we're doing it here. But there's an activity you do with kids in kids' church where you ask them, what did Noah bring with him on the ark? And the kid's are like, uh, oh, uh, oh, oh, me, me. Animals, donkeys, cattle. They go through the whole list. Yeah, yeah, what else? What else did Noah bring on the ark? He brought his family with him. That's right. What else did Noah bring with him on the ark? Food for the animals. That's right. What else did Noah bring with him on the ark? Sin. You see, the answer is what Noah brought with him on the ark is Sin. And we see in verse 20 of chapter 9 this sin manifesting itself really quickly. So here we have the new Adam in a newly restored creation with new provisions, new stipulations, new commission. And we see essentially a new fall. Read with me verse 20 and 21 of Genesis chapter 9. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Now we have a new spin on being naked and unashamed, right? Here, here is Noah drunk and passed out in his tent, another evidence of rednecks in the ancient world. Now, now the, the, the author doesn't give us any explanation Or any condemnation of Noah's drunkenness. And it's not as if explanation and condemnation of drunkenness aren't appropriate. They're just not appropriate for what the author is doing here. So we see the old sin that Noah carried with him onto the ark manifesting itself in his lack of restraint and his recklessness in his life. And then we see it manifested in something his son does. Look at verse 22 of Genesis 9 and Ham the father of Canaan saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside now it is not entirely clear what Ham does here what is abundantly clear is people have done the weirdest possible stuff on earth to interpret this or offer interpretations of this Ham has been accused of incestuous behavior, homosexual behavior. Ham has even been accused of castrating his drunken father as some kind of power play to propagate the family line. Now, what Ham is doing is sinful, but I think it's actually way more simple than that. If we understand the language of seeing and we understand this idiom that we see throughout scriptures and throughout the ancient world of the father's nakedness representing the marital union of the man and his wife, it's most likely and most plausible that Ham witnesses his parents being intimate and somehow brings shame upon his family because of that. Now, the point here is twofold. We're not in the garden anymore. You see this? Though this is this newly restored and recreated world, we see very quickly that there's something from the fall that humans have brought with them. And sin is something that we carry inside of us around all the time and the author wants us to see that paradise however quickly recreated is this quickly re destroyed and then i want you to notice that the covenant god makes with humanity that we heard read earlier is a covenant made with this kind of evil on full display In fact, if you look back in chapter 8 of Genesis, in verse 21, God says to Noah, I'll never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. God says, hey, I know the problem that's inside of humanity And though there will be local floods and local hurricanes and local earthquakes and local tsunamis and localized manifestations of judgment, God says, because of sin, I will never eradicate humanity again. And that's what we should be seeing with this old sin in this new world. But with this old sin in this new world, what I want us to be gripped by this morning is this everlasting covenant God makes with humanity in the face of their sin in this newly created world. Let's talk about this word that's repeated multiple times in Genesis chapter 9 and over 200 times in the Old Testament. The word is covenant. Now, we gotta understand that for us, covenant is, you know, like maybe something we complain about with our HOA or something we think about distantly at best. Covenants in the ancient world were something that they were very clear on. And at the most basic level, covenants are relationships. We see nations establishing covenants with other nations. You see neighbors establishing covenants with their neighbors. At the heart of covenants, biblically, is a relationship between two parties that's defined by loyalty, faithfulness, and love. And what God does with a concept that was familiar to them in the ancient world is he ups the ante because when God makes a covenant with someone, it's not just a normal relationship. It's a saving relationship defined by perfect and eternal loyalty, defined by flawless faithfulness and defined by infinite love. And what's astounding to me is the covenant God makes with Noah here, he's speaking to Noah, but he's clearly telling all the readers of Genesis for years to come that he's not just making this covenant with Noah, right? Look in verse 9. I establish my covenant with you and your offspring. Verse 10, with you and with every living creature that's with you. For every beast of the earth. Verse 12, he goes on. This is the sign of the covenant made between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. You see again in verse 16, between God and every living creature of all flesh that's on the earth. Again in verse 17, God says, I've established this between me and all flesh. This is a universal covenant of common grace. God says, there's something about my wrath that for the sake of humanity, I will hold it back. And I'm making an oath. And for God to make an oath, he doesn't fail like you and me. You and I make promises sometimes, and sometimes we make them seditiously as a way of manipulating someone we never intend to keep the promise. I remember when she was like four, my daughter convinced one of her classmates to cut her hair. Predicated on the promise that after you cut your hair, I'll cut mine. And the girl cut her hair, and my wicked little beautiful girl just laughed. She thought it was hysterical. She never intended to cut her own hair. So I cut her hair. Because <laughs> the Collies keep our promises. But like, we, we make promises seditiously, or we just make them weakly, f- like frailly. If that's a word. We make promises and we fail, but God never fails. And in the ancient world where covenants were made by a two-party agreement, God says, I'll take it all on me. I will establish a relationship between myself and everything that walks the earth forever so that no one will ever experience the outpouring of my wrath like they did in Noah's generation. Now, does this mean God promises to save all of humanity? No. But this is a context in which the salvific work of God can take place. God restrains and holds back his just and infinitely holy and perfect wrath to protect humanity so that you and I plagued by the same old sin that plagued Noah and his family, could look to Jesus and be saved. Like what Noah sets the stage for is astonishing in terms of global history. And then God tells us that he's given us this sign to help him and us remember the covenant, this sign of the everlasting covenant. I had a friend show up at the office on Thursday and tease me knowing how I tend to be. He's like, so how much time are you gonna devote in your sermon on Sunday to the rainbow? And I was like, slightly less than zero. It's just not my way. But then I read two sermons from two of my heroes Tim Keller and Charles Spurgeon and God awakened me to the power of this sign in such a way that I don't think I'll ever be the same and here's where it started look with me in verses 12 and 13 of Genesis chapter 9 God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And and, and I think before that, either I had never known this or I'd just gotten lazy and forgotten, but God doesn't talk about a rainbow at all. I think I've thought for years, like, okay, cool, God, I'm supposed to look at this refractive nature of light and remember that you keep your covenant. Cool, I'm okay with that. No beef with me. But he doesn't say, I'm putting a rainbow in the sky. The word he uses, that's used like 70 times in the Old Testament, is a weapon. It's literally a bow, a warrior's bow. And what God says to Noah after wiping out all of humanity? Listen to me, He says, "Hey Noah, tell this to everyone that comes after you. I'm hanging up my weapon. Never again," says the Most High God, "will I unleash my fury upon humanity that way." Here's here's what blew my mind. Maybe this is cheesy to you, but rocked my world. Spurgeon and Keller both make lots out of the fact that the bow is hung upward facing the sky, as if to signify and to remind us that God says, I will never again fire the bow of my wrath upon humanity. Instead, I will fire it into heaven and pierce my son with the bow of my wrath. God said, hey, hey, I'm giving you a sign. And the sign, by the way, only comes in the wake of storms. No one walks outside on a beautiful day and says, gee, I hope I see a rainbow today. Like, we only see rainbows in the wake of storms. And we only see rainbows, by the way, where the glory of the sun pierces the darkest parts of the clouds. Spurgeon says, you want to know how to know God? He's taught you in the bow he hung in the clouds. Look at the clouds, Spurgeon says, and admit that you're in a storm. Look at the clouds and admit that you bring fury to the earth you inhabit. Even if what you're experiencing now is fury caused by someone else, you bring Wrath and fury to the earth. And the place where God's mercy pierces the darkest parts of the storm is where we see the bow. This is the gospel. This is God saying, hey, I will reorient, apparently, the refractive nature of light such that you and all who follow can see that my war bow I'm hanging up and the only time he'll take it up again is to rightly pour out his wrath for you and me on his son on his son and he says I'll do this as a reminder you see this in verse 16 I think when the bow is in the clouds I'll see it and I'll remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that's on the earth. God doesn't do this because he's forgetful. (laughs) I don't think she's forgetful, actually. I think she's maybe the most diligent human on earth and maybe a little bit forgetful. My wife puts sticky notes on everything. (laughs) Like, I'll pick up pieces of paper and there'll be a sticky note on them that says, don't throw this away. For herself. Signs on the back door, don't lock the door. Like, like sticky notes everywhere. God isn't saying that the bow in the clouds is a sticky note for him. He he remembers. In fact, he has no problem with forgetfulness. Nothing ever slips his mind. The bow hangs in the clouds as a reminder for you and for me. He gives us this gloriously variegated spectrum of color to remind us that he's hung up the weapon of his judgment. And the only place it's pointed is toward himself. And the reason why he says it's a reminder between you and me is because he's the one upholding the covenant. So it does remind him, even in our being reminded of it, that God pierced his son where you and I deserved to be pierced. We're going to see this recapitulated over and over and over and over again throughout Genesis and throughout the scriptures. God's judgment, though not universal as it was before. God raising up a new faithful witness and the faithful witness failing. Humanity will time and time again choose cursing over blessing. We'll choose to interpret our own life instead of let God interpret it for us. And what God promises us here is though the sin that we carry inside of us seems to prevail, he will never wipe us out for it. And the hope we have is we don't have to be wiped out for it because he'll wipe his son out on our behalf. Pray with me. Jesus, you knew when the bow was hung in the clouds that it was pointed at you. And so we can celebrate that, that the, the most high God will never just globally pour out his judgment again. But we know that all of us will be called to account for our lives and for our sin. And we will either be punished eternally for our sin or you will be punished in our place. I ask now that you would give us faith, give us eyes to seek awaken us, not just to the beauty of the symbolism of the bow in the clouds, but to the unimaginable beauty of the sacrificial love of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. So as we see your faithfulness in the life of Noah, God, would you give us eyes to see your faithfulness in our lives now? And I pray all these things, Jesus, in your name and for your glory, amen.